Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Alright folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Uh, we have episode number, I believe it's 278 today. Uh, I am your host, Mike. Uh, Maurice is still kind of in and out. We'll, we'll get him in when we can. And uh, yeah, P.D. Newman was supposed to be on this episode. He had to take a quick flight out. So shout out to P.D. We'll get you back on soon. Um, and yeah, we have a special guest today, uh, Alan Piper. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation regarding LSD and the secret history of LSD and um, all these amazing different little counterculture you know, anecdotes and different things. So, um, we'll get to that in a second. Um, you can check out bicycle day. Uh, I have the link down below. Uh, it's through psychedelic press. Shout out to Rob at psychedelic press. And, um, you can also buy it, I believe on Amazon. I have, I have both of those links down below. Um, and yeah, he just got back from the breaking convention where he spoke at, he said that there should be a video back up on there soon. Um, and yeah, if you want to support Mind Escape, all you have to do is click the Linktree link down below. Uh, we do have our documentary, uh, which is up. Um, we've had a great, great reaction. We are still working on trying to get it on a platform where more people can see it. But if you want to watch the director's cut, uh, all you have to do is go to our Patreon. It's seven seventy seven. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, it's up there. So if you're interested, click the link tree link down below. And again, our documentary is called As Within, So Without, From UFOs to DMT, uh, regarding the mind and the UFO and DMT experiences. So, um, but yeah, without further ado, welcome on the show, Alan. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Uh, thank you, Mike. I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine, yeah. A little, a little worn yesterday. I took my four-year-old grandson to the theme park. So that was like a long day, starting at six o'clock in the morning to get back to about close to eight o'clock at night. So, uh, but other other than that, it's quite demanding to have a four-year-old taking him around the theme park, and, and he's 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 miffed because he can't go on some other rides because he's not like one meter point two, and that. So you have to sort of guide him around and keep him keep him cheered up, you know, with with, with one means or another. But other than that. Being a little, a little weary after a long day with my four-year-old grandson, I'm, I'm really cool. I'm fine. Yeah, I can't even imagine that. Our little guy is one and a half, and I remember my wife and I went to Disney World on our honeymoon, and we were worn out, just the two of us going around, going on rides and eating food and walking around and stuff. So I can't even imagine around, you know, chasing a little guy around. And, uh, yeah, but I'm sure I'll experience it here soon. Um so your your book bicycle day and other psychedelic essays um it, it's kind of that it's a, just a conglomeration of different things that you've written um but they all kind of like work through each other right so um what was your inspiration for um this book and your previous book i believe was what 2015 you wrote strange drugs make for strange bedfellows about yes. politics and, and all that stuff well, very much focusing on, on uh, Ernst Junger and and a little bit the radical rights interested in, in drugs. And that is, 
I've not really focused on that so much recently, but I think that's still developing really and still a, still an issue. And the link there through also kind of neo-paganism and neo-paganism and the radical right, the connections obviously are fairly straightforward there. Um, and thus you have a connection with the radical right, neo-paganism and sort of enseo shamanism, I suppose you could call it something, something like that. I'm sure people know what I mean. But um, that was an interesting uh, uh, adventure and I had a certain amount of caution when that came out, because um, talking about Hoffman's connections with Ernst Junger, his closeness to Junger, um, who after all was a supporter of the Nazis until hmm, quite a long way on, certainly past the light of the long knives, certainly past Kristallnacht, according to his own account in interview. So um, he has what um, uh, one of the, his, the literary experts of Junger called a, a, a dubious past. Yes, and it's like a u, u, dubious past. And Hoffman must have well known, you know, what kind of figure um, Junger was when he sought contact with him just after the Second World War. Um, but um, not directly con contingent to to these essays. Um, well, it, actually, I say that it is. I struggle. <laughs> I have to remind myself to open this up because it is a selection. You're asking me how it arose, and it really arose through uh, Rob Dickens of Psychedelic Press. And thanks so much to him. I have to also name Nicky Weir, who did a lot of the editing, hours and hours of uh, editing um, to um, to improve some of the earlier published essays. So they're all barring the long um, Bicycle Day essay itself, Bicycle Day in Ritual Myth and History had all been previously published, but they've been re-edited with a certain amount of additional material. So the, the origins of the book really lie in Rob Dickens coming to me and saying, well, why don't we do a collection of your essays and get them together? So they've been published in various places. I have to give a shout out to Guillaume Gris, or he has various monikers, um, the publisher of uh, Invisible College Journal, who published some of my essays previously and agreed that they could be published here in this format. Um, so that's really the origin um, in one sense. It's the most re the recent origin. Obviously, there's the origin in the essays themselves and my motivation in, in seeking out the, the stories behind these, um, these essays, which are all kind of historical, something of a different approach really to um, psychedelics, perhaps in the more conventional approach in looking back to the pre-war period in many cases. Um, people tend to think of, you're talking about the psychedelic renaissance, is the sort of buzzword of the of the moment, um, and um, um, uh, and that's looking back. I think to the to the sixties. Really, they're talking about a renaissance after um, what some people would see as LSD research being compromised by the you know by the the popular culture of psychedelics. Whether it's really whether it's really to blame, some people like to blame Timothy Leary and so on uh, 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 and such like. Um, I think it's a much more complex picture than that, but that's not my speciality, not something I particularly want to talk about. Anyhow, so historical approach to the, to the history of psychedelics and the sort of hidden corners, I suppose you might call it, of, of psychedelic history. So if I remind myself yet again by just browsing and looking. So we've got, um, yeah, Peyote at Harvard, in the it's called Jazz Age Peyotism, 1920s and 30s. Really remarkable story. Um, some American readers might be familiar um, with some of the figures involved, not so, um, not so uh, uh, well known perhaps in the UK. 
And then uh, Hope Murley's Lot in the Mist, this fantasy novel, conceived in Paris of the 1920s, um, where the author, Hope Murley's, and her, her partner, um, they were certainly viewed as being sort of a sapphic partnership um, when her, her, her partner, Jane Harrison, an important his, historian of Greek mythology, um, they went to Paris. And um, um, when she retired, what was called Paris Lesbos, because it was a kind of centre of lesbian literary culture. Uh, and obviously there's a whole expatriate, uh, Ernest Hemingway and so, so on, kind of thing going on at the same time. So, so there we have, and yes, David Lindsay. Yes, the author states of David Lindsay. So there's an English author who wrote this um, relatively well-known book, Voyage to Arcturus, um, which was kind of rediscovered in the psychedelic 60s in that Ballantine fantasy series. Uh, it was one of the earliest ones uh, that um, was republished by Ballantine. Um, and curiously, the fact that there's um, some clear references to altered states in that, uh, that novel, Voyage to Arcturus, as kind of a science fiction fantasy where someone voyages to a, a, another planet um, uh, revolving around the star Arcturus and there's these strange adventures, grows strange additional organs of perception. And um, within the story, he drinks and eats various substances on this alien planet that um, alter his consciousness. But strangely, no one until I wrote about it seems to have picked up on the presence of um, of, uh, of these states of altered consciousness, but very subtly described within. So perhaps in that way, perhaps slightly easily read over, but um, so subtly described to me that suggests that the author had some um, some knowledge. I don't remember the exact date around. Yeah, that was the one of the more interesting ones to me when I read it because um, I knew about a lot of the other stuff, but the um, that story I never even heard of. And you're right, it kind of like a alien Alice in Wonderland or something like that. Mm. Have you got to read the novel since, or? Uh, no, no, I have not. Um, but you know, I'm gonna have to check it out now. But it's it's uh, it's interesting that, that it was rediscovered when certainly psychedelics had something to do right. with the you know, the renewed interest in fantasy novels from the 1920s or the the end of the century, really, and so on. Um, writers like Dunsany and, and and so on who were kind of rediscovered. It's really yeah. interest in those early fantasy novels. And of course, Dunstanley had stories involving hashish. Yeah, for me, like. that one, like I said, I'll have to read. I actually, most of what I read is nonfiction. That's just what interests me. But mm. I make an exception, you know, for like sci-fi or, um, you know, Philip K. Dick, like that kind of stuff. So I'll, t I'll definitely check it out. Um, mm. Like I said, I find it interesting. But yeah, I, I really wanted to talk to you because... I'm really fascinated with ancient and, and ritualistic psychedelic use uh, pertaining to, you know, like we're talking like Eleusinian mysteries and Soma and all that kind of stuff. But I also got into this whole thing when I was 13, 14 years old. My cousin and I were in the same English class um, and we were allowed to read whatever we want. So we picked the electric Kool-Aid acid test uh, by Tom mm -hmm. Wolfe. Um, and from there it was like off to the races and we're reading all of hunter thompson stuff all of you know on the road jack kerouac all of jack kerouac's books all that kind of stuff so um this really fascinated me because it kind of marries the two things together kind of the more occult and secret stuff mixed with the more current counterculture 60s stuff so yeah i really wanted to um, discuss this with you so in terms of 
Um, I do want to talk about Leo Perutz and the St. Peter's snow. And like I said, we had PD Newman on a couple, you know, it's been a month now, actually. I just took like a month break hiatus from doing the podcast. But um, when he was on last, we were discussing St. Peter's snow and this idea of like a peace pill and trying to end wars and that kind of a thing. So why don't you give us your take on it based on, you know, you reading it. You just said you just reread it. Well, I just reread it this afternoon. I've been getting a lot of hits on um, on my academia.edu webpage, which you can find if anyone who's interested can find the essay there, just under my name, Alan Piper, academia.edu. People are probably familiar with the, the website. And, um, well, so Leah Perutz, this Austrian author, published this novel in 1933. Um so 10 years before, as we understand it, yes, the discovery of, of LSD or of the hallucinogenic properties of LSD by, um, by Albert Hoffman. And there's a, a whole bunch of elements really within this kind of um, mystery novel, I suppose you call it, because part of the story behind the novel is this man awakening in hospital, being told he's been in a car crash. Um, um, but he has... Um, other memories of what's taken place that he's that he's been injured in in a in, in an uprising by these um peasants in this in this german village so it's an austrian novel set in germany um and centers around the 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 protagonist's recollection that he's been he's a doctor that he's been employed by this um aristocratic baron in this uh, remote um german village um, to be the local the local doctor and to minister to the local peasants. But he discovers, um, when he discovers that the Baron was a, 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 um, a close friend of his, um, of his father and, um, and that um, the Baron's been working on the development of a drug derived from what is an ergot type fungus, a parasitic fungus of, of wheat or rye, um, with the intention of, um, of uh, provoking a religious revival. So the Baron has discovered that um, historically ergot poisoning has been responsible for these bouts of uh, religious mania in the Middle Ages and further discovered that ergot was the secret sacrament of the ages of the, of the ancient mystery religions of the Greeks and Romans and that's been handed down as a secret through history. So he's determined. He's also um, discovered or found this um, protege who's um, in the, um, the royal line of the Holy Roman Empire, and he intends to get this man, uh, this prince, so to speak, or this this pretender that he's discovered, um, to get him back into power, having engineered this religious revival with his <laughs> with his ergot derived drug. That's essentially the story. Um, it's a little bit more complicated than that. There are other figures in it which are all really quite interesting. The, the, he employs a, a Greek, why Greek, but it's interesting, Greek biochemist whose name is Callisto. And, um, and he has a, um, a, a manager, a sort of land manager, who's a, a Russian emigre who's escaped from the Russian Revolution. Anyhow, uh, he wants to persuade the doctor to secretly administer um, experimentally this drug that he's, de that he's developed. The Callisto, the biochemist, is extracted from ergot. And um, he, 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 or he pretends that he has and it's had no result. But subsequently, the Baron invites all the local peasantry to a fete, free beer and cakes. 
and um, secretly administers this drug to the local peasant population. Um, and rather than provoking a religious um, uh, uh, revival or religious feelings in them, it provokes a communist revolution in which the baron is killed and the, the protagonist novel is injured uh, and wakes up to find himself in hospital. So that's the essence of it. So the problematic nature of the novel is um, in several points, not just one. One, it's predicting, so to speak, or foreseeing the deriving of a, of a drug from ergot, which has the effect of um, of invoking mystical kind of mystical experiences or religious experiences um and then there's these other elements the 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 knowledge that ergot was a secret sacrament of the of the ages um handed down through secret societies um which of course was not proposed really until the road to Eleusis was published by um, by Watson and, and Ruck and uh, and Hoffman uh, around 1975, something like that, I think. Um, anyway, so it presages that they don't make any reference in uh, in the Road to Eleusis to Perutz's right. book. In fact, before sees it, I think they were not unaware of it. In fact, Karl Ruck, who is who is a friend of mine, I I wrote to him when I first discovered it. He was the first person I wrote to, and I, I emailed Karl and said, "What have you heard of this book?" Um, um, the you know um, the, whatever the title is now that but um, just Saint Peter Snow it's called Saint pa Saint Saint uh, Patrischnee in in German originally and um, and and Carl wrote back to me by email saying no he hadn't and um, so then I set about researching in much more detail and and wondering where Perutz could divide his his knowledge or his ideas um and um and thus uh, um developed the asset that i finally had published in the journal time and mind um, yeah the the that, problem with the yeah the problem with the ergot thing for me um like i said i've been fascinated with all this obviously um you have a lot of people looking into the eleusinian mysteries not just um you know road to eleusis but now you have like the immortality key brian morescu and all that mm -hmm. and they find ergot uh remnants in these chalice from uh spectral analysis and different things um what are how are they because ergot itself is actually kind of volatile in the human body uh it causes seizures convulsions all sorts of different things mm -hmm. so i know I don't know which one, but they proposed, I think it was like Hoffman or maybe Ruck, proposed floating hot oil on the top of a vat during the Eleusinian Mysteries to, to you know, um, extract uh, the LSA from the, you know, the ergot or whatever. So I guess my whole thing with all of this is, has somebody successfully done this? And if not, why aren't our best, you know, ethnobotanists or whoever trying to look into this figure it out? Because, I mean... That would be the first place I'd look. Well, there's a number of, yeah, that's a, that's a fundamental problem, isn't it? So, I mean, one, one thing I guess that I, I've not seen any uh, uh, reports whether people have tried sort of low doses of ergot to see, you know, what kind of effect that has. But um, proposing a method by which um, uh, a sort of, non-toxic or not so toxic um, hallucinogen could be derived from ergot. It's something that people have worked on. I mean, Peter Webster 
was published with Carl Ruck, um, a friend of Carl Ruck's. He's proposed a, 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 um, a possible solution, so to speak, but they're all um, hypothetical and hypothetical. And um, I mean, there is an issue that ERGOT does not appear to be exactly hallucinogenic um, in its raw form, despite reports or, you know, again, there's... Um, Terrence McKenna has that famous anecdote where he's talking about um, this guy who they asked to bring a bunch of powdered ergot to a dealer yeah. that was going to make uh, LSD, but you, you obviously you need all the precursors. And they're like, don't yeah. do anything. Don't take it. It's not anything that you know will get you high or whatever. And the guy honked up a big line and they found him like convulsing all over the ground and stuff like that. All so, right. um, yeah, it's not... Um, it's not something people should be going out there and doing and trying, but um, I've heard speculations like you said, kind of like rumblings of people trying things and different things. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it would it would it would solve a lot of problems if they could just figure out how. And if people don't know, claviceps purpurea or um, ergot grows on wheat and rye fungus. We've talked a lot about it on the podcast before, but. Um, you know, it's associated with the Eleusinian Mysteries and these agrarian cults for obvious reasons. You see a lot of um, wheat symbology even at Eleusis to this day. Um, so, yeah, interesting stuff. In terms of, um, you know, you have you spoken, you said you, you know Ruck. Um, mm. Has he said anything since all this stuff's kind of come out with like, you know, immortality key and more knowledge about all these kind of topics no i've not really spoken to Carl about that i've had a few online chats with with um with mark hoffman his his close friend and his you know he's kind of support supports him um but no i've not i've not really dug into it i i did buy murasaki's book and um it's not really an area of deep interest to me at the at the present time it was something that i was much more interested in quite a number of years um ago when um yeah when i used to see uh, quite a lot more of uh, of carl yeah but um i think as you were suggesting it, it, it awaits the possibility that you know someone demonstrating that ergot in a raw form um can be can be employed to to induce a kind of hallucinogenic experience and and that's yeah. not been shown to to be the case. And I share, I mean, look, the oh, yeah. immortality yeah, yeah. key, I, I thought I had good knowledge in there, but to be honest with you, I thought that what it would have sent it over the top is if he had tried to do some of these rituals or something and tried the actual entheogen associated with it and then wrote about it. I, I thought that that would have really put that thing uh, to another level. Who, who are you talking about now? Sorry. Brian Rescue from the immortality key. Um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he, he, you know, you don't, you've never done psychedelics and that's, that's great that you're adding history and science and uh, proof to a lot of these things. But I think that, again, I think that I would have added so much more to that book if you would have actually tried and, and wrote about it. But, um, so back to your book though, um, one thing I want to mention too is, um, in terms of, bicycle day there's so many like myths and you know things that people get wrong or they've heard this or they've heard that 
can you just give us like a basic premise of what what the re, what really happened on Bicycle Day, and then maybe we can talk about some of the misconceptions regarding it. Well, we we don't know what really happened. No, no, I, you know what? Yeah, you know what? So I'm really, I, where where I start is in, I guess in two places in a sense. One simply with the the bare the, the fact that it's a highly romanticized event. So it it already has this kind of glamour um, surrounding it. Um, and it's a kind of iconic, mythical event, so to speak. And, uh, and, um, and where you start is that we really only have um, Hoffman's account. So we're relying on this, um, this uh, uh, his book from 1978, um, LSD, My Problem Child, um, for his account. And he's, he's obviously spoken about it on other occasions, referred to it in um, various kind of essays um, or interviews that he's, he's given. But the bare bones of his story, as I understand it, um, haven't changed. Um, which was that on the 16th of April 1943, he experienced this accidental uh, laboratory intoxication. Um, so in other words, he felt a bit weird, uh, felt a bit unwell. He realised that he'd absorbed something or inhaled and somehow he absorbed a chemical of some sort that had made him unwell. Um, and guessed that it was LSD-25, um, which he'd been working with. Um, there's, of course, there's a step before that in the romantic story, so to speak, which is that he'd returned to LSD-25 from, from uh, quite a number of years previously when he'd first synthesised this particular substance, um, 25th in the sequence, of which there were some before and some after, um, which had been tested previously on dogs, uh, and the conclusion had been that it was a substance of no specific value. He'd had this intuition to return to it, and therefore that was why he was working with it in the first place. Um, so that was the 16th of April, 1943. And um, he guessed that was the particular substance, which presumably he was working with on that day. Um, and so he returned to it, and three days later decided to have a self-experiment and took what he thought was an absolutely tiny dosage, um, unaware of the fact that... Um, that um, LSD is effective in doses of micrograms rather than milligrams um, compared to something like, like mescaline. And um, so he took what he thought was a, possibly the lowest dose, which would actually be threshold to, to, to the kind of effects he's experienced on the 16th of 250 uh, micrograms. And of course, he had a full blown trip. He was unaware that this sort of 250 was the kind of the hippie dose of, of the 1960s rather than the kind of you know, sort of rave type of dose of maybe something more like 100 micrograms or whatever and had a full-blown um, trip and um, was obliged to um, head home accompanied by um, a colleague and they had to cycle home because it was wartime so petrol restrictions uh, in, in, in wartime and um, so he uh, was accompanied by this female colleague and they um, cycled back to his home which is about half an hour away that's, that's how the story from cycling home under the influence of LSD um, uh, is the kind of romantic and slightly humorous kind of picture for those who've maybe taken LSD in inappropriate circumstances and found themselves you know, trapped on a bus or a train or on their way home from somewhere and um, found they were uh, high in a kind of inappropriate circumstances. So that's the story behind Bicycle Day, Bicycle Day and the discovery of the hallucinogenic properties of, um, 
of, of LSD, but it's been questioned in a number of ways and by a number of different um, people. Um, David Nichols, the, who's kind of now taken on the mantle of Shulgin as the, the world expert, a, a professional chemist, professional chemist who's the world expert, expert on psychedelics, um, found the story dubious for various reasons. And um, he did this kind of um, thought experiment at um, um, was it Burning Man, anyway, some kind of psychedelic salon with an audience and um, talked through the possibility or, or what he dwelt on the unlikelihood that Hoffman had actually experienced a, uh, an accidental laboratory intoxication on the 16th of April. The reason being that a, a chemist like um, Hoffman would have been absolutely scrupulous, especially if you're messing around with chemicals that could be toxic, I mean, extreme toxicity that you're, um, that you're unaware of. Um, so that's number one. Um, and two, I mean, um, no one has successfully shown that um, that uh, you can absorb LSD um, and get a trip through through the skin. Um, so he thought it extremely unlikely that he had actually, actually um, accidentally um, um, uh, become intoxicated. And he suggests that um, he'd actually had one of his one of his spontaneous mystical experiences that he'd. Um, He'd experienced in his childhood. Well, why he would have experienced that in the lab and that, uh, that particular occasion is another question. Well, one which, in retrospect, excuse me a moment, in retrospect, um, um, I, I, I've not questioned, but um, but that was uh, David Nichols' suggestion that he might have just been a, a, an accidental, uh, uh, sorry, sorry, a, a, he had a, this spontaneous mystical experience or experience of intoxication, or let me just say an altered state. Um, so, uh, so that was David Nichols, and he, also I think he questions the duration and, and various other little technical aspects. And that's David Nichols. Well, I'm, I'm sure he wish he wish he'd never done that now because I, I kind of, I've picked it up, and, it, and it's fuel to the fire of the conspiracy theories that um, that LSD was not discovered by accident. Yeah. Um, so let's let's talk about that for a second. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think P.D. Newman even brought it up that. The idea that again that there's this idea of people looking for a peace pill or to end war or they were sick of war and after mm -hmm. world war one and um so this idea that you're saying oh he would have been more careful and that wouldn't have really happened is it possible that somebody could have came to them and been like let's do this or maybe he had discovered it way before and then decided like it was time to go public with it or well, i mean have you thought about that or you know any of those well, scenarios? Well, speculate endlessly, but there's there's there's. I was going to say there's nowhere to go. Well, there are the archives at Sandoz, and uh, Mike J has gone to those archives and had a look at the um, the the notes that Hoffman made at the time. His report to um, to Stoll to Arthur Stoll, the the, the director of the pharmaceutical section, um, and um, he concluded himself that um, that the, the, the that Hoffman had already, and unsurprisingly by 1978, had already somewhat perhaps romanticised uh, the experience because his initial um, reports, um, his initial report to Stoll were of a rather unpleasant experience. Um, uh, whereas the report in uh, LSD, My Problem Child, is that, you know, it was a disturbing experience initially, um, but it, as the effects gradually wore off, which are I think many of them might have well have experienced uh, had a difficult time with LSD, but when it, when it slackens off a little bit, you're then able to 
much more enjoy it that um that um that that didn't really um um it wasn't the nature of his, of his original um of his original report now i think you have to think that 1978 was well as it's 30 uh, three years, am I right? From 1940, no, 35 years from from the original time, from that instant. And he must have talked it over many, many times, told it repeatedly, whether at dinner parties or conferences, before he eventually wrote it up in LSD, My Problem Child. Um, but of course, you were just referring to um, these stories that um, it was um, invented deliberately. And of course, this links back to St. Peter's Snow. Um, so the source of these stories fundamentally uh, uh, goes back to Willis Harmon, um, this figure from the kind of West Coast um, psychedelic scene of the 1960s and 70s. He may go back a bit further than that, but um, he, he, he worked at Stanford. He, he, was a, he was an expert in um, electrical engineering, I think it was, uh, and um, but somehow got involved with the West Coast psychedelic New Age kind of scene. And um, in a radio interview uh, in Australia, he reported, uh, and, and it was published as a, a, as a transcript, that, um, that Hoffman's story had been cooked up by Hoffman, and that um, two scientists, of which Hoffman was one, were followers of Rudolf Steiner. And um, in order to save, so to speak, a troubled world, they were intent on creating a what you discover as a peace pill, um, something along the lines of if only the you know the presidents of the of the countries of the world would take LSD, then that would be the end of war, and we'd have a peaceful world. So on the back of that kind of idea, he suggests that uh, um, or claims that um, followers of Rudolf Steiner had deliberately cooked up LSD as a as a peace pill in the Sandoz laboratories. Um, yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, we've talked about oh, Ste Steiner a lot uh, on the show, but just more, you know, anthroposophy and all of his, yeah. you know, scientific well, slash philosophical slash spiritual movement stuff. Well, I mean, I've never been attracted by Steiner or his work. Um, I used to pop into the Steiner bookshop. There's one in London. It's, I think it closed. I've been back to it relatively recently. I think it reopened. Nothing, nothing, you know, you could grab books off the shelf and browse. Nothing about Steiner ever attracted me. He, he, he attracted me, it seemed to be a rather, of a rather conservative nature, which made it seem strange to me, the suggestion that um, his followers would be cooking up a peace pill. Oh, and that yeah. was what Willis yeah, Harmon, yeah, Willis Harmon said. And um, I suspect that in another report published by Martin E. Lee, um, he attributes the story to Al Hubbard. Um, it seems much more likely that Hubbard, the kind of character he seemed to be, might have been the spinner of tall stories, or at least of um, maybe garbled accounts um, of, um, of, of, of events, yeah. So it's possible that Hubbard was the original source and Harmon came by it through, through Hubbard, and he was certainly part of that. That scene, yeah. I mean, Hubbard is a remarkable character i became really quite interested in hubbard and trying to trace some of his life prior to um and i'm surprised no one hasn't done more there has been a, a biography published fairly recently i don't know if you're aware of that of al hubbard and going back to his no. days in vancouver 
I don't know him, but in Vancouver, he was um, originally he was working for the bootleggers in Vancouver, and he was a kind of um, bit of a technical whiz. Um, and um, he was employed building um, um, radio rigs for the bootleggers between uh, Vancouver and America, um, smuggling, you know, bootleg liquor in, in, in during Prohibition period. And um, eventually he became a police informer. He switched sides, uh, probably been arrested, and that was the, 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 the arrangements he made. Um, there, there are lots of reports. In fact, the, the, the biography that's been published of Hubbard um, Go, draws on a lot, a lot of those original police um, or newspaper reports of the trials of the various times that Hubbard was arrested in connection with uh, bootlegging. But he turned sides by all accounts and, and became working for the DEA or whatever. And um, so it's quite likely that Hubbard um, and the stories of Hubbard going into the, you know, the secret services, um, the OSS or, or, or whichever, the American or the, the English secret services during the war, Seems, seems quite possible um, because they certainly did recruit out of um, out of those um, uh, police departments. What about um, like the the idea that Wasson? Because I know like we've had arguments. <laughs> I've had people on that insist Wasson wasn't connected at all to the CIA. I had other people say he's completely uh, he's in on it. You know, which I f- would find interesting since he brought you know the whole mushroom shamanism and maria sabina stuff um mm. to the uh, public as well as writing tons of books on all these you know soma and all these different topics so um do you have any thoughts on i know that's not really part of this but do you have any thoughts on wasson and that whole thing talk about whatever comes up well <laughs> well now we're in yarn irving territory aren't we if you start talking about that and so uh, i mean Irving did a freedom information request and got piles and piles of documentation um, amongst them one that he, he refers to uh, uh, sort of kind of central to his claim that Watson was you know actively working for the CIA and then that really depends a little bit on your reading of that particular document um, which you know if people are interested in that they can probably find it um, find it online um, so Irv is an interesting character who really, I mean, he seems to have gone way off the rails. <laughs> I would start emailing me again. So he was kind of a friend. He interviewed me. Uh, you know, I did a, did a podcast type interview with, with Jan Irving when he was interviewing, doing good interviews, required a lot of relatively obscure um, psychedelic, well, theobotanists, really, and that kind of a thing. Some, some from Europe um, that people might not other, otherwise be particularly aware of. So he was doing some really quite good work. And he republished then, Sacred Mushroom in the Cross. Yeah, too. that's right. He was in on that, and he was quite friendly with Rock at that time. And uh, and then, yeah, he became obsessed with, mm, well, I got a bit lost of exactly what his theories were, about that Watson was working for the CIA, and that the picking up on this, this idea that um, in some way or other, the psychedelic 60s were a kind of mind control program um, uh, operated by the by the CIA. Um, never quite clear on this. Was it to to um, to damage the um, the kind of counterculture, the political counterculture, to kind of get them all kind of airy fairy and and high on on acid, so they lost interest in their political activism. Oh, I get a bit lost. In, I don't know if it was mind control. Have you ever read the book Chaos by Tom O'Neill? 
No, no. Okay. I think you, sh- you, you should definitely check it out because there is actual proof that the people that were working at the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic that were giving um, medical attention to a lot of these hippies and stuff like that, yeah. the one guy was actually a pharmacologist that was studying uh, rats and LSD previously, and they were dosing the rats with, um, they would give them uh, amphetamines uh, to boost them, or no, they, they would they would first give them LSD, and that would give them like kind of like a little bit of you know, influence over them. And then they would give them amphetamine. So what they saw was there's, this is like a famous experiment that ended up being kind of what happened on the streets of Haight-Ashbury, where you'd see a lot of hippies come in, do LSD, Mm. peace, love, flower children. And then all of a sudden um, you start to see this wave of crime and and hippies taking amphetamines and speed and speed freaks and all this Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. So it actually mimics that experiment that they were doing on rats in a lab previous to the 60s even occurring. So this is the Manson book, really? Yeah, there's the Manson book. But there's a lot of good LSD stuff in there. Yeah, yeah. So I picked up a copy of that. I picked up uh, Andy Roberts' um, uh, old copy of that. He was selling some of your old books. Andy Roberts, the, the author of uh, Albion Dreaming, the, the history of LSD in Britain, which is a, you know, a, a great book. Anyone who's interested in the differences between, you know, the kind of LSD uh, culture in, in, in the UK and America, certainly should have, take a look at um, Andy Roberts' Albion Dreaming. If I'm putting a, um, uh, 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 advise people, they should check that out. So, Yes, yeah, so I, I will take a look at it. I can probably see it over here. I've got a pile of books I picked up secondhand. Yeah, I mean, it interests me. Like I said, I'm into the Merry Pranksters and Ken Kesey and all, you know, all that. I actually am a huge Grateful Dead fan. I'm a musician myself, so like I'm very aware of the Grateful Dead's history. But to your to the, what you were mentioning, though, there's a lot of people that take it further. There's some people that think the Grateful Dead were a psyop or that Osley, because his uncle yeah. was like a senator or something, somehow was connected to all the thing. I think you can just connect all these pieces together and it doesn't really mean anything at some point. But I do think that there's certain elements, like I said, that Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, we know about MK Ultra, We know it was real. We know that they were doing that. Now, how much influence does that have over that entire movement? I don't know. I mean, that's where you, you lose me a little bit on connecting. It's such a complicated um, picture, yeah. isn't it? I mean, what are we kind of in now in kind of Robert Forte country? He, Robert Forte is a, certainly a, a Facebook friend of mine for many, many years. We've exchanged a lot of stuff. And, you know, for, uh, you know, Robert draws on some of my kind of material to support his own kind of um, theories. But it's a very... it's such a complicated picture as you're really indicating that to 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 follow the the trails and, and the connections yeah it's easy to disappear down a, a rabbit hole of one's own um invention hmm. what was your favorite essay um in this book well that's a good question i, I did i was sort of pondering that um let me just read them. What we have one, we have the legacy of transgression, psychedelics, yeah. and the end of history. Uh, two, jazz age peyoteism at Harvard, a psychedelic circle with a Mormon connection. That one was very interesting. Uh, drugs, sapphism, and altered states, a hope in Morales. Uh, Lud in the Mist is that's what we mentioned that um, mm. uh, fantasy novel you were mentioning uh, for the altered states of David Lindsay as you you mentioned before three psychedelic novels of the 1920s 
Number five, Bicycle Day and Ritual Myth in History. We just mentioned that a little bit. And then number six, we have re- Revisiting Unger's uh, Garden Home, which, um, as you mentioned, your a lot of your stuff comes from Ernst Younger and that whole influence and connection yeah. to, to Hoffman. I think that my favorite of those is probably the Garden Home one. Um because I because Younger is such a fascinating figure, and and the the connection between Hoffman and, and, and Younger um, is is so interesting. The kind of the ambiguity, really, of their relationships. Younger, who is a poster boy for neo-fascism, you can't get away from the fact that he is. So um, and so you'll find you know various neo-fascist websites and uh, European in particular. Um, and um, uh, he's an icon of those neo-fascists, um, and Hein Hoffman, the, the, the I can say humble, maybe not be quite right, but the, the quiet chemist working away at Sandoz, who purely by chance discovered um, LSD, and and really of his or not of his own making, has become a kind of icon of um, of LSD culture. That that friendship, and. Um, and the fact that Golden Home, this um, this short, this a novella really, um, is based around, or certainly certainly refers to a lot a lot of interesting things, but it it, it is partly based around um, um, trips that um, that Hoffman took with Ernst Younger, and uh, uh, Hoffman makes that clear himself in 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 the chapter. I mean, he devoted a whole chapter to what he refers to as the radiance of Ernst Younger. Um, and he refers to the fact that yes, that that, that, um, that this novel um, visit to Golden Home um, was based around, or at least drew from um, some of their mutual trips together. Um, but it's also very much based in in Junger's wartime experience, the the trauma of um, of German defeat, or double German defeat, first in the First World War. After which, um, you know, Junger was uh, was an opponent and had a hatred for um, uh, for the Weimar Republic, and um, um, and then of course their, their second defeat in, in in the Second World War, which he referred to as um, simply called the catastrophe, and um, so that that novel is is so interesting. I suppose it's a bit of a. I mean, it's not easy to get an insight into Junger's mind i mean there's see young is of course recently his um his book referred to in english as approaches um has been published in english which describes his experiments with drugs his drug experience and and what he makes he makes of his drug experiences so published by telos publishing house they've republished a number of younger's um books non-fiction books and uh these fiction books i think certainly mostly his, his non-fiction books, such as The Forest Passage, which is a very interesting read as well, um, which I draw on really in talking about um, um, Visit to Golden Home. So, but for those who are unaware of what Visit to Golden Home is about, it's a description of, of three people undergoing, uh, um, what would you call it? Tuition or guidance by this kind of magus figure called Negro Montanus. Um, I think he's referred to in that novel as Nigger Montanus. Jung has this kind of magus figure who pops up in a number of his books um, that he refers to by some different names, but Nigger Montanus means black mountain. Or, and I say it's, you know, uh, reminds me of the term grey eminence. But um, 
anyhow, two men and a woman um, visit this isolated island um, off of, let me get this right, Sweden or Norway, Norway, I think, and, um, and undergo this um, period of tuition, what do you call it, initiation, I suppose, a process of initiation under this Magus figure. And it ends with this, what you might call a kind of trip sequence without any mention of LSD or a drug, um, but uh, um, certainly drawing on Hoffman and Junger's um, trips together, um, in which the, they undergo a personal transformation and um, um, difficult trips, I suppose you would call them, and out of which the figure, which certainly one of which kind of represents Junger, um, um, it's healing of the trauma of, um, of I guess, of what he refers to as a catastrophe, which is the, you know, the, the loss of the, the, the defeat of the Germans in the war. Um, so it's an interesting window into, into that world where um, the atmosphere that existed in what I refer to in, in, in the Bicycle Day essay, um, the group of individuals who um, uh, who, 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 who gathered around Hoffman, friends and associates of, of his, um, who experimented with um, LSD um, in the sort of 1950s um, and then again in the 70s. Difficult for me to remember right now the exact dates. But there was this kind of what um, Carl Bayer, uh, who was a professor of religious studies, he's now really retired, um, but he gave a lecture in Amsterdam Amsterdam University at one of these um, conferences of the ESSE, the European Society for the Study of ESSEW. I was troubled to remember it all. The European Study for Society for the Study of Western Esotericism. Charles Bay spoke there um, and kindly referred to my research on, on Hoffman and Junger and forced me to stand up and and uh, and make my presence known. Um, and he gave a lecture there on um, what he referred to as Hoffman's occultic circle. So that's an insight that, that, that most people wouldn't have unless that, that lecture is, can be found online, Carl, K-A-R-L, Bayer, B-A-I-E-R, Carl Bayer, on, on Hoffman's occultic um, circle. Interesting. And, um, Do you think that, that... Oh, sorry, yeah. go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. <laughs> The fact that there was this group of individuals who were writers, publishers, um, the pub, one of the publishers of Younger and Hoffman and and other of the of the circle, um, who indulged in these uh, um, what were sometimes referred to as seances um, or a symposia or um, sometimes initiations. So they then they would dress in Oriental garb and such like, which kind of harks back a bit to the to the to the Harvard um, reference to the. Um, um, the figures then who were sort of um, dressing in oriental robes and um, lighting incense and all that kind of thing and that so reminiscent of the hippie period and such like so these of course, guys were not hippies they were um, they were mixed they weren't all, all, all of the political right like younger Hoffman's politics we don't really know I suspect that he has some kind of sympathy with younger's political views but of course friends can have completely opposing political views so you can't necessarily um, deduce that but anyway Carl Byers' lecture, uh, and I kind of expand on that a little bit or, or paraphrase quite a lot of it, Carl Byers was kind enough to agree that I could essentially do a trans translation or transliteration of some of his um, um, 
of some of that um, lecture that he gave at Amsterdam University about um, Hoffman's occultic circle. But um, but so interesting to me, really, uh, more interesting way than that, because I think it's because I had some awareness of that, <clears throat> was my discovery of the closeness of Arthur Stoll, the director of Sandoz under who Hoffman, who recruited Hoffman in the first place, of um, Arthur Stoll's close um, friendship with Hermann Hesse, um, the German author, um, mm -hmm. who was very popular with the, with the hippie generation. Sid Arthur. earlier about Pan Valentine's fantasy series. Um, so um, Hesse's books, um, which have been really a kind of a, a, of a literary backwater for people studying German literature, um, were republished in paperback um, versions. Um, one at least had a, had a forward by um, Timothy, Timothy Leary. So, um, yeah, Stoll's Arthur Stoll, who's always this background figure, not referred to many times, but he recruited Hoffman and, and brought him in. And um, Hoffman doesn't really have a good word to say about Arthur Stoll. Um, but that's that's another story which I might write about. I'm always on the edge of upsetting people. Um, I'm very, very wary because my Hoffman Younger <coughs> essay um, strange bed drugs make for strange bedfellows. When that was first published, um, one of the, um, the 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 psychedelic elders, the pundits of uh, psychedelic culture, reviewed it, saying a footnote to history and not a very interesting one. He's put on on Amazon. Um, well, I don't, I don't understand though. Like, <laughs> like anybody <clears throat> that's done psychedelics and done them enough know that it's they don't make you a better person if you already have that in you to make yourself better or be mindful or whatever. Maybe you get a paradigm shift. Maybe you're somebody that's super radical in some way. And maybe that just like, Oh, okay. It gives you a different perspective. I guess I could see that. Uh, but for the most part, you're not going to do it. I mean, here's an example. If you go on Facebook and you go on any of the psychedelic forums, there's people talking shit to each other all up and down the comments. It doesn't matter about, um, you know what I'm saying? So it's, it's not like doing the psychedelic makes you a better person. It, it actually, um, it's just a tool. It's just a tool. If you know how to use the tool, I think it's helpful. But if you're a radical person, right wing, left wing, whatever it is, um, and, and you're just not, you know, part of society in that, in that realm, um, then I don't think that that's going to do it for you. You know, I think this touches on a, on a problematical issue, doesn't it? Which is that, so, so when you go back to the kind of the, the psychedelic sixties or seventies, there was this idea: oh, if only we could get the president to do LSD or the le world leaders to do LSD, then the world would be a better place. And of course, that story feeds into Willis Harmon's uh, 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 account, the supposed Steinerite, Steinerites at Sandoz plan, and um, <clears throat> and um. um and within that sort of hippie culture, there was this idea, you know, that, that like, I think there's a story in, in um, um, what's it called, the, the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, that the, you know, the, the, the these uh, Hell's Angels, you know, all did acid and then they drove their bikes down to the ocean and they threw their weapons, <laughs> into all their, their, uh, their armory into the ocean, you know, so there's this, there's this persistent notion that um they're taking acid or taking don't you think but don't you think person. it's less the drug or the compound and more like it in reality don't you think it's what people want that person to experience is more of a paradigm shift or a paradigm shame as opposed to like 
just taking this compound or whatever, you know, like you need, that can happen in different ways. It doesn't have to be psychedelics. It can be, um, maybe somebody, you know, has a loss or somebody, um, experiences something that really shakes them up. You know, for me, I've, I've had that myself, you know, with my mom going through cancer and now she's fine and everything, which is great, but it's, it's not, it's more of the experience of going through that, I guess is what it is. You know, I'm in absolute agreement with you. And, um, I remember saying to, 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 I won't name now, but to a sort of psychedelic pundit figure, you know, well, is, is the experience of a psychedelic such as LSD, um, necessarily more life changing than, for example, having a car accident, um, where you almost lose your life, you know, and and then you reconfigure your life because that, and, um, I was on edge at one time of working up an essay something along the you know the lines of lsd has been the great disruptor it has this disruptive effect and and uh, it isn't powerful doses and then what what um that um that that is its nature you know that it, it disrupts your normal perceptions you disrupt your normal perception of yourself and so on and so on but what i did want to kind of follow that thread a bit into the present time where you now have arguments online that I'm um, about the claims, particularly those coming out of Imperial College. That particular group, I suppose, it probably applies to to, to others as well. Um, but the um, where they're doing experiments in which they are claiming that it demonstrates that um, um, that it makes people more open to nature. That it improves people in that same kind of sense. It makes makes people better people in in, in some sense. Uh, but there's a good con- there's a de- decent contingent who are, are, are questioning all of that. And, and one of the problems, of course, going back to, to to when these individuals were getting involved with eventually getting licenses um, um, to <clears throat> to do experiments using um, psychedelics. Um, and to see you know what beneficial effects they might have of course they're looking for beneficial effects <laughs> that, that, that is part of, at the heart of this i suppose you might say that you know how much are, how much are those results supposedly positive results um in terms of things like addiction or, or whatever else it might be simply people being depressed and and, and so on that, that these improvements how much are there an out- outcome of the assumptions of those who are actually um moderating the experiments so you still have this thread going all the way through to the present day right now in the middle of the psychedelic renaissance where all these claims are being made for the therapeutic potential of um a, a psychedelic well, no, at least there's some on the sidelines i will say this um and I, I haven't brought this up and i don't know if you're familiar with our show i have severe ocd um i was resistant to all treatments pretty much that were thrown at me from for years 10 years uh ssris psychotherapies uh any kind of therapy you can think of hypnotherapy i tried everything um and in my life i mean i have a relationship with psilocybin i've done it a few hundred times um throughout my adult life and even in high school years i guess you can talked about um but That has been the single most helpful thing in terms of OCD is like a mind trap. You, you, you obsess and it's like you think of the same thought and it's like you can't get out of it 
Um, so what it allows you to do is take a step back, kind of look at yourself from outside yourself and exit that loop and understand, okay, this is what's happening and why. Um, so I think mindfulness, introspection, I just think psychedelics are a tool. And I think if you're smart enough, and I hate to disparage anybody who whatever, but if you're smart enough, I think you, you can use it as a proper tool and you understand what it is and you understand how to implement it in your life. There's people that don't, or they use it as a party drug or they use it as an escape or whatever. And I think that that, I think all drugs should be legal. So for me, you know, that is what it is. But in that essence, I think that since it's been so helpful to me, um, I do see a lot of the science for the mental health stuff where it's hopeless for some mental illness and some mental issues. And maybe it's just me. Maybe some people are more susceptible. That's why I always tell people I am all about options. So you should have the option to take SSRI. You should have option to go to psychotherapy, CBT therapy, whatever it is. You should have the option to experiment with your mind too. If you are, um, you know, you're having a really tough time and nothing's going to help you. Why shouldn't you be able to explore your mind in in different ways to help it and and stuff like that? So that's always been my thing on here is I have a pretty, pretty reasonable take where I'm not saying, Oh, it only has to be psychedelics and don't take SS, you know, or the opposite and vice versa. It's, it's all whatever helps you. And we're all different. We all have different biochemistries and backgrounds and different things. So um, I just wanted to point that out because I do feel like there is some beneficial stuff going on with that but i also get your point too where it's like it reminds me of the cannabis thing where we're gonna make it seem as there's nothing wrong with it at all and we're gonna push it through and then we'll figure it out from there and to be honest with you i don't know how i feel about that i feel like i could be on board with that given my history with it but not everybody has the same history so Mm. no i every sympathy with the with the view that you've just expressed I mean, what strikes me in that context really is, is to ask you um, your own, if you feel you've benefited from uh, psychedelics in that respect in dealing with with OCD. And I, I can relate to OCD. I, I've had touches of a OCD myself. I'm still obsessed about, about certain things, um, such as when I get a new book, <laughs> I want to open it quietly in private and, uh, and, so, and such like, and uh, don't touch that one. Um, and uh, so I can, and my father was very much OCD in his later life when he was heading towards a touch of dementia and such like, it, it really was quite bad. So I, I'm quite familiar with, with with OCD and I've had to have periods in my life when, when, when I've had that, it's been a little bit problematical. But um, but I'm assuming that, that, that this was through your own self-experimentation with LSD, that you didn't take it as a therapeutic context. No, it, it was an LSD. Actually, I'm not a big LSD guy i'm not oh, against oh, yeah. it i just i've taken lsd a fair amount in my life um it's just more of a heady thing i like psilocybin because yeah. it's more all-encompassing uh more of a body feel more of a um yeah so it's, it's a much gentler yeah drug somewhere between between i just feel more at home with it you know like if you have a spirit animal or plant or whatever like yeah. that's my the fungi is my yeah. thing you know but um yeah. but to that to that regard um, I also think it's made me a better person too, because it's allowed me to think about on my own life and through examining my own life and my own skeletons and my own things, my issues and different things like that. It's made me a kinder, 
more empathetic, gentler person. Mm -hmm. So I do think that there is a way that that can work through you. I just don't think it's as simple as giving somebody something and saying, you'll be fine. I think that there's a lot more layers to it than just that. Yeah. But the point to me there is, is that you, you self-medicated, so to speak, and let's not call it self-medicated. Yeah, <laughs> it is what it is. For, yeah. but, but that it was through your own personal use and your own personal circumstances. And you've had a journey through your life to come to the point of taking it and you had certain, certain uh, assumptions about it uh, and, and so on. And that fed into your, your experience. But it was through your own choice and your own experimentation. And I mean, I, I cannot imagine putting myself in the hands of... Uh, of, of a therapist under the influence of a psychedelic um other oh than, yeah, you know, yeah but other again than a, than yeah, a good yeah. friend someone no, no. That you know well or that you tripped with before i'm not a no. person that's going to go sit in a circle yeah. in south america and yeah. do ayahuasca with a bunch of people if i was going to do dmt and i've dmt is like the last frontier for me it's the one that i still have not done and i've done all the other um and if i were to do it i wouldn't be doing it in a group of people i would have a babysitter somebody i trust watching me while i do it and that's about it not that's not to say that doesn't work for other people i know other people that love to go sit ceremony and love to sit um with friends and uh colleagues and different things but uh, again i think it's just knowing yourself know that you know goes back to the old thales uh know thyself and, and if you know yourself you know with these compounds but i will say this to your point i think i know where you were going i don't know if you were going to say this but to imagine that this would become a mainstay of like therapy like you they're recommending people go trip i don't agree with that i think it should be something that you still seek yourself like yeah I guess what I'm saying is that I don't think that it should be prescribed like how other things are prescribed. You should still be open to wanting to do it and, and not like as yeah. um, a regular part of whatever medical, you know, um, I don't know, like, a, you know how they were just kicking out SSRIs for years. Like, I don't think it should be anything like that. I think it should because it's so powerful. It still should be up to the person. Maybe we offer it more easily and give more knowledge and background and everything. And, and Hey, if you want to try this, but here's the downside, here's the upside kind of a thing and, and allow people to figure it out on their own. Yeah. And I, and <clears throat> I think what I was trying to suggest is that there's a lot of, there's plenty of popular wisdom to be found about um, psychedelics. And, and, and um, if you, if you seek it out, if you're open, to, to to that and that it, I'm an advocate we're already the transgression essay at the beginning of the book really is I come down rather against medicalization I'm not saying there's not a place for it I'm not against it if, if, if you're not going to stop it I mean farmers going to get hold of them and, and something will develop there we've yet to see exactly where that all goes um and then against uh, again I, I'm kind of against the the um, formal spiritual use for me, for me, but um, but I, I feel it's the, the history that I identify with is is the artistic and creative use of, of psychedelics in in what is a uh, you know part generally speaking of a kind of subculture, I, I suppose, um, and that's what historically I guess I, I identify, identify with having been a teenager in the seventies and. Uh, 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 and LSD in that particular kind of um, context, um, and then re return to. I mean, my own story, which you didn't actually ask me at the beginning, is you know what was my original experience, or why did I have even have That's an interest a, in? 
that's a rookie it. podcast move, but let's get it in here now. Give us a little summary. But, um, but, but only to say that my introduction was in the 70s as a, as a teenager. And, you know, and kids at school were talking about LSD and I thought, well, I've got to try this. And um, that, that is where it started. But I did then move away into the kind of getting there without drugs kind of thing and, and experiment with other other things and kind of drifted away. Um, and then I got made redundant from, I was working for like a hippie company, um, importing Japanese some seaweeds and such like, and um, was made redundant, was bought out by a much bigger company. End of, end of story there. And uh, my wife said to me, my wife then said, why don't you go to university? And um, just purely by chance, the local, it was a polytechnic at that time now, now it's a university. Um, they had a history of ideas course there, like one of the, I think the only one in the country, quite unusual. Um, so we studied history of science, history of, uh, of philosophy, history of um, art and so on, history of a bit of everything really. And um, so I, I took my, my graduate studies uh, there and, and graduated in history of ideas. And it was kind of after that, that I was kind of moved to um, apply some of the disciplines I hoped that I would kind of learn through just as an undergraduate there and started applying them to my interest. Well, that, well, what I didn't really say there is that that was about the time that Terence McKenna was coming into um, in, into view and um, picked up one of his books, the one with the like stoned ape theory in it. And um, I food really enjoyed gods. that. And um, Food of the Gods, there we go. Yeah. And um, that was my, that renewed my interest from something which I'd really quite moved away from. Um, and so that renewed my interest and I kind of, um, moved in there and my brother my late brother unfortunately who passed away um um we both experimented a bit with acid back in the 70s and um it opened a new realm up he became a kind of expert grower of mushrooms he was like a science guy i was always arts and he was you know in the in the the airing cupboard uh at home he had good little boxes and jars of, with tin foil on and he was uh, an expert mushroom cultivator, Harry, my, my my late my late brother, lovely guy. That's awesome. He had that. He, he have to have the. You have to have the. Uh, um, the willingness to be absolutely scrupulously clean and uh, and all of that kind of stuff. Those kind of disciplines, which are not, are not really. And he, he had the patience to do all of that, all of that stuff. But um, but anyway, it renewed our our, our interest. And he, he he back in the seventies, and we were out picking mushrooms when that became uh, where this the psilocybin mushrooms and. The, in the fields when when those first came into the news but anyway that was my background and and i started writing and it was really through meeting chris bennett out in vancouver and i went to one of his um oh nice his, yeah we've had chris on chris has got a new book coming out too soon about uh yeah. ancient judaic cannabis rituals yeah yeah. yeah so i met chris out in vancouver i went out to a conference there and there that's where i met carl and blaze who before he passed away and um and things really took off from from there. So it was a kind of re revival of interest on my part that got me started in in reading and and writing. Mm. Nice, yeah. No, that's a that's a good backstory. I um yeah I um I think Chris is probably one of the best uh, cannabis uh, writers out there. To be honest with you, we had him on for as part of our uh, What Was Soma series where we were discussing the different. Mm candidates for soma and obviously his is uh cannabis and um yeah i'd love to i'd love to hook up, hook up again with, with chris sometime but um, yeah. i went out to Vancouver twice once i met him then i went out there and spoke at a second conference that he held there um but um 
But there we are. Yes, he's, I, I, I have obviously his last book. I can't remember what the title of it is. I now. think he moved too. I think he's on the East Coast, Canada now. He was living in uh, Vancouver. Oh, really? I think yeah, you think he's like New Brunswick or whatever East yeah, Coast. Uh, the occasional post of his. Yeah. 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 Um, but, um, but, He's come a long, long way, and I hope we've all come a, lo- a, a long way. And yeah. his most recent publication is really, really pretty good stuff. Mm. Well, listen, Alan, well, let's wrap it up here. Um, yeah, I'd like to get you back on sometime in the future. Again, I, there's probably a lot we can discuss, and maybe even next time we can get uh, PD uh, in here because I know he he had some good questions when I mentioned you were coming on. Uh, he's like, "Oh, I got to be on that episode," and then unfortunately today he had to jump on a plane uh, a lot earlier than he thought. But um, yeah, uh, I really well, enjoyed. There's some connections there between between PD's sure. uh, stuff. I've I haven't actually had a chance to read it, but I got his angels in Vermilion. Yeah, was digging into that a little bit, and um, yeah, it's very very interesting stuff. Yeah, harm yeah. harm yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Everybody, check it out. You can go to Psychedelic Press website and purchase it. Uh, I also have the yeah, Amazon link. To- maybe a few of the hardback copies left. So they're only on, I think, like 300 of the hardbacks. Yep. Thank you to yep. uh, Rob at Psychedelic Press. Uh, and they also thank you for setting this up. And uh, listen, yeah, like I said, Alan, I, I'd love to get you back on again in the future and uh, appreciate what you're doing. And I love this kind of research. And obviously you're passionate about the topic, which comes through um, your writing and your interest in the topic, which is always, um, yeah, I think that's the one thing I look for when I look for guests and stuff. So um but listen i really so much for having me yeah yeah no problem and uh good luck with your book i'm sure it'll do well it's already done i know it's i've already seen it out there tons of people reading it so Mm -hmm. um but yeah you know we're gonna wrap it up here everybody uh again please check out uh alan's book the link is down below at the bottom um and yeah you can follow him on uh twitter i believe your twitter handle is i had it here let me pull it up Follow him on Twitter at, what do we have here? Do I do it? Yep, it's 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 at T-Z-A-N-J-O. That's right. Um, and, uh, yeah, you can follow us on Twitter at Mike Escape. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's it. If you want to support Mind Escape, click the Linktree link down below. All of our links are on there. Um, we do our show live on YouTube um, and we are also on all audio platforms too. We have video episodes on Spotify, so check us out on there. And a good way to support the show is just to leave us a nice review. We really appreciate that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever it is. Um, and if you have not already, our documentary is out. It's called As Within, So Without, From UFOs to DMT, where we look at uh, those phenomena in correlation with the mind. Um, I will play the trailer as we exit here today. And uh, again, check out our link. It's down below. Um, Maurice and I are working on a way to get that out there uh, to more people shortly. And it will be premiering uh, at our buddy Toby's uh, film festival, the Roswell uh, Daily Records, putting on a film festival at the end of May and beginning of June. So please check that out. And uh, that's it. We love everybody. Stay safe out there. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Peace. Thanks so much for your time. I don't have to believe something's here. There's no question about that. They are not just from this planet, but based on the characteristics they're most often described having, that they're simply us from the future. It was um, the biggest aircraft I've ever seen in my entire life. It was 
semi-translucent, it seemed. And we see four orange orbs flying one after another, basically in formation. Um, I think in a way, you know, you could call a UFO a flying dream. Out of the cornfield, that seven foot tall, gray, menacing, communion looking alien or whatever you want to call it. Because it can be a multitude of things, of deities, of godlike creatures, of aliens. The reality that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis seems to be this very, very thin slice of something far larger and far more complex. As within, so without. From UFOs to DMT.